I am Dr. Tasha Browning, a trauma therapist, and this is The Trauma Perspective. In this podcast, we will discuss various topics surrounding mental health, trauma work, trauma healing, and explore the lived experiences of trauma survivors. Be warned, trauma is a dirty topic. It is thick with hurt and it reveals some of the ugliest sides of human existence. These discussions may not be appropriate for all listeners. So take a breath, stay present, and let's discuss the trauma perspective. So welcome to The Trauma Perspective, and this is the podcast on affordable mental health care. And when I say affordable, uh, we also want to include talks about um, accessibility, because we know that part of anything being affordable um, means that you actually have access to it. Mental health care is one of those topics in our country that is a hot topic right now, given everything that people have gone through uh, with the pandemic and the social injustice that's took place over the years and over these last couple months. And, and then also um, with the most recent election, you know, people have been left with uh, many different types of traumatic stress in their life and many different changes. And so having access to affordable health care, but then affordable mental health care, period, is a topic that really needs to be discussed and talked about. Maybe we can hash through some of the major points and major issues of this topic. And so I have Susan Dean today, um, who's a therapist, joining me to have this conversation because she has a level of expertise and background in it that I find um, that her perspective is going to be pretty helpful in helping us really understand many different levels and aspects of how we can look at the problems with uh, mental health care being affordable. So Susan, can you uh, introduce yourself and um, tell us a little bit about you? Yeah. Hey, Tasha, this is Susan Dean. Um, So I am in the state of Florida, a licensed mental health counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I'm also a what's called a qualified supervisor, too. So I can supervise registered mental health counselor interns, registered marriage and family therapist interns in the state. Um, But I'm also the founder and CEO of a nonprofit mental health company that's based out of Orlando, Florida. That's Agape Therapy Institute. Um, And just over the years, I think running on the business side of things, trying to improve affordable and accessible mental health care, at least for the local community, um, I've learned a lot about the ins and the outs of affordable and accessible mental health care, what is and isn't possible, and really being able to see firsthand what some of the problems are that we're facing and why it's so hard to achieve. So as we begin to start talking about um, this topic, uh, I think we should just do a little bit of groundwork in letting people know that when we are discussing um, affordable uh, mental health care, we are just confined to our understandings of mental health care in the United States. And we also are even more limited because of the way uh, healthcare is set up in the U.S. And uh, for our understandings, mental health care, we are still con- uh, confined to the way in which Florida has, because that is where we are, the way in which Florida has, um, um, you know, changed the mental health care and the way in which it works within our state. Because every state uh, is a little different. 
um, which is another issue that we'll probably uh, cover today. And so when we talk about the way in which people access services um, through mental health care, we're going to be including these ways in which people pay for services. So we're talking about people who access mental health care through Medicaid, through Medicare, through employer and covered uh, insurance, uh, even through COBRA. We're going to talk about private insurance that people may purchase, uh, such as if you purchase insurance off of the healthcare marketplace. We're going to talk about how people can access um, coverage through uh, EAP plans. We're including that um, when people access mental health care through schools, because that is another resource uh, that people use to access mental health care. And then also community mental health care, such as a community uh, based mental health care facility that may be funded by state funds, um, also may be funded by donations. And we're going to talk about how uh, we're going to include that as uh, the structure in which the ways people access um, mental health care. And all of these uh, ways in which people access services are actually going to be covered um, and are actually part of some of the um, you know, strengths, but also weaknesses in the mental health care system um, in the U.S. So that is the basis for where we're starting. But I think to get sort of a, a good standing on... Um, why this topic is so relevant to Susan, I, I would like for her to sort of explain um, her practice and um, how her practice is actually a little different, maybe from um, the ways in which standard private, and we're discussing private mental health practices now, um, are established. Susan, can you tell us about Agape? Yeah, so the standard private practice is going to be you know, for-profit, there's going to be some set fees, whether it's cash pay um, or they're going to be billing insurance. So the fees aren't really going to vary very much. Um, at Agape, what we're doing is we are in network with some insurances that we're able to contract with, but we also have a self-pay sliding scale. So that's really going to depend on the person's income level for one, and then it's also gonna depend on the level of therapist that the person is seeing. So we've partnered up with the universities that are local here doing master's degree programs. Those are graduate level um, that the students need clinical training. So we're partnering up with them. So that way the costs can be um, as low cost as possible. Um, so at Agape, we have three levels. We have the graduate student interns, so they're still in school, they're doing their clinical rotations. Um, and then we have the postgraduate intern who has their master's degree, who has clinical training, and they are newly licensed. Um, so they have to be under the direction of a fully licensed therapist who's qualified to provide that supervision. And then we have the level three therapist that's the fully licensed therapist. Um, so again, our costs will vary from as low as $25 on up to $150, just depending on the level of therapist and then the person's income when they apply. And I think that, um, you know, Susan, one of the reasons I wanted to have her on the trauma perspective is because she's worked really hard at developing different cost structures to make mental health care accessible, but also affordable. But with that, you know, I'd also like to just let it be known, and I'm sure she would agree that um, that the work that she has done works for the area that she's in. She has um, access to some resources that may not be necessarily available in every community, such as, you know, a university, 
um, which does make her um, uh, unique in how she's been able to um, really um, think about her practice. And we do recognize, even as we talk, that if you are in a more rural area um, or if you're in uh, maybe a more urban area with uh, less resources, that uh, some of these um, these ways in which uh, cost structures are created would be have to be tweaked and it would have to be applied to um, you know, the, the area that you're in for it to actually work. So, you know, we, we just want to make sure that it's understood that um, with how diverse the mental health needs are in the U United States, um, there is no one way in which uh, we can, um, you know, solve these issues or, or help solve these issues, especially as individual therapists who uh, have limited power uh, and limited uh, authority to make some of the necessary changes that would make uh, mental health care more accessible and affordable in all communities. But what um, Susan has done is taken the issues that are in her community, looked at the resources that are in her community, and try to do some excellent problem solving, actually, um, to, uh, you know, combat some of these issues and start to put, uh, you know, a fee structure in place and a model structure in place to meet the needs of different um, mental health issues for um, the to serve the community wide. So um, I think the one question I do like to cover before we get any further, because uh, I think there's something that everybody kind of uh, wants to know, Susan, um, is why did you become a therapist and why did you decide to um, practice in the way that you are? Um, in the way that Agape does therapy? Yeah, so I, I think there's probably a pretty long answer to that, <laughs> but short of telling um, my whole story and what led me into the field, um, at the core of it was really the fact that I had a pretty troubled adolescence um, and went through a lot of my own experiences with depression, with trauma, with anxiety, with suicidal ideation as well. Um, and I think that once I started to get better, I started to get resources, I started to get help. What I felt was that nobody really deserves to go through something like that alone. Um, and I really wanted to kind of give back in that way and also, you know, really kind of be living proof that it is possible to get better from a pretty dark place um, and just give back in that way. And a lot of what motivated me to start a practice as well is just that I wanted to um, expand my reach um, beyond just the one-on-one -on -one counseling services with individuals, but really helping kind of recruit groups and um, give more counseling to the community. I mean, it seems like a lot of people who choose the profession of therapy and work in the field of mental health, um, it always seems like uh, we choose this area of, of work in our life path because it is it is a calling for us. And so choosing to even go into um, this area of work is, is more than just uh, work um, for us. And so you taking that a step further in trying to sort of combat some of the issues uh, surrounding it not just working on the therapy, but working on, you know, um, working on the accessibility, affordability and stigma of mental health overall um, is just something that I think that you should be commended on. So I just wanted to make sure uh, that we say that before I say that to you before we move forward. So in our um, discussion, I think the, the first question I like to open up with 
Um, because, you know, I, I, I ponder this back and forth a lot, Susan, and that is, is mental health care really affordable? Like, is that really a thing right now in the United States? <laughs> um, I guess it depends. Um, there's no one answer mm-hmm. to that. I think that does affordable mental health exist? Yes. Um, is it accessible in some areas? Yes. I would say as a whole, when we're looking at the whole country um, and for most people, um, I'd probably say no. I mean, it is accessible and it is affordable in a lot of ways for people who work and for people who have money. Um, But for people who are out of work for any reason or for people who are um, lower income or, you know, even middle class, um, it, it starts to become out of reach for a lot of people. Yes. So I'm just going to read off just a few numbers here from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Health Illness, because I think this might give some context into what um, Susan just said in terms of, uh, yes, it is, but no, it isn't, Um, in that um, they did a um, report on um, finding mental health care in your area. Um, The report is called The Doctor Is Out. And in that report, they wrote that the rates of difficulty in finding a provider in comparison to mental health care and just uh, typical, I say, physical health care. When you're looking for a mental health therapist, people reported um, having a 34 percent difficulty in just being able to locate a therapist. We're not talking about being able to access them. Uh, make a phone call. Uh, We're talking about just locating therapists within their community versus um, them being able to find a primary care physician. Uh, They only reported a 9% um, problem in access. And when we talk about another level of mental health care is being able to find a prescriber. That's someone who would actually be able to prescribe uh, medication for your mental health diagnosis. People reported a 33% problem in being able to find a provider. And we're not talking about accessing again, just remember just finding a provider. Whereas when we uh, take the same issues over into specialty care for, uh, you know, a physical health doctor, people report that they only had a 13%, um, you know, issue in being able to find a specialty provider. And, um, you know, the, this report is somewhat uh, aged uh, now, but in all honesty, I actually think these numbers are probably higher now. And then when we look at people, and that's just looking for a provider, when we go into people who are, let's just talk about people who are insured, um, people who have insurance, um, who's maybe paying for an insurance plan, or maybe they are using their employee assistance, their EAP, or maybe they are on COBRA, or maybe they are able to access um, services through their employer, right? Um, It's reported that people still are paying out-of-pocket costs. And those out-of-pocket costs um, range uh, for a mental health therapist, 72% of people who already pay for insurance are still paying out-of-pocket costs for mental health care. And people who want um, just a primary care physician, um, it's only paying for uh, out-of-pocket costs 3% of the time. Um, the other thing is, is that if you want a prescriber, people are paying for out of, in network, they're paying for out-of-pocket costs 79% of the time, whereas they um, maybe just are not having to do the same thing with any other medical specialty where they only pay for out-of-pocket costs maybe um, 7% of the time. 
But with that, I'd like to say that when we talk about out-of-pocket costs, we're talking about all the other aspects of mental health care that may not be covered, not just your session, but if you need medication, if you need assessments, any type of uh, evaluations done, um, if you need uh, any type of specialized therapies for children or something like that. We're talking about all those other areas of mental health care that are just not being reimbursed. With that, I wonder, have you, like, what is your take on that, Susan? Have you experienced um, people coming to you to your practice with insurance and still being, um, you know, astonished at the um, the cost of mental health care or you not taking their insurance or them not being covered uh, or being surprised at the additional out-of-pocket costs for some of the other services that may, that may not be a part of just their session rate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I think it's important to sort of distinguish like there's psychiatry, which is the medication piece of it, right? Then there's the therapy or the counseling piece. So those are your licensed mental health counselors, your licensed marriage and family therapists, your licensed clinical social workers. Um, and then there's also the assessment piece, um, which mostly is done by psychologists too. So there's different kind of specialties within our field, right? Um, here where I work, the, the company that I run, we're just doing the therapy, the counseling piece. We're not doing the medication and we're not doing the assessments. Um, and as counselors, any assessments we do give, even if they're just kind of brief assessments, just measuring depression, measuring anxiety, that sort of thing, those sorts of things don't um, get reimbursed by an insurance company. So those um, sometimes can become out-of-pocket co out costs, just depending on the length of the assessment. Um, but yeah, we do get a fair number of people who will call in. And, you know, one of the things I try to train my team to say is like, instead of saying like, oh, we're not in network with them to say, um, they're not a company that we have a contract with. Because I think a lot of people think that it's always the provider's choice to be in network with oh, an insurance yes. company. Mm -hmm. And it's really not always the provider's choice. Sometimes it's the insurance companies that are dictating um, how large they want their pool of providers to be. Um, and, and a provider can knock on that door for years and that insurance company will say, no, we have enough providers in the area sorry. Um, so I think that's important for just people to understand how it works. Um, and then I think insurance is just so complex. There's so many different types of plans. And even as somebody who deals with insurance every day, um, it takes it takes me a while sometimes to really understand what a plan is, what the coverage is. Um, and I don't think the average person is that well versed on everything they're just kind of looking at what are they paying for their premium costs per month and they can afford and then in some ways they don't even really know what they're getting so if all i can afford is you know all i can scrape up is 100 or 125 bucks a month to pay for this insurance plan and that's my premium that is most likely going to be what's called a high deductible plan. So what that means is they have to pay the full contracted rate out of pocket until they hit their deductible. And then the insurance company will start covering something towards the cost of care. And some of those high deductible plans can be as high as 
$15,000. So that person's never going to hit that deductible really. Um, and so they're paying 100, 125 bucks a month. And then also now they're paying the contracted rate, which can vary. It just depends on the insurance company, but it's hefty. I mean, per session can be anywhere from 60 on upwards to $125 a session. So we do get people that are like, wow, that's really expensive. I can't afford that. Um, And what we do at Agape is a lot of times we'll educate them on their plan. We'll educate them on how their insurance works. And then we're also going to be talking to them about what their income looks like. Um, We do our financial assistance based on net income. So what a person brings home as opposed to their gross income. And we'll talk to them and say, you know, actually, it's more financially beneficial for you um, to use our financial assistance program as opposed to using your insurance. And we're going to talk to them about their options here. So I want to break some of that down. So let's first start with, I don't think people understand how difficult it is sometimes to be paneled with insurance companies. (laughs) So just as an example, Susan, because I hear and the thing is, is that I've heard I've heard from other therapists different time length um, with getting panel Absolutely. from the time. Let's say take one insurance company that you're working with and you don't have to say who it is. But from the time that you submitted your application, from the time that you actually was completely ready to go and paneled and was able to see your first client, how many months was it? I think the longest that I've ever gone is. 180 days. <laughs> so <laughs> from submission of inquiry to be yeah. panel to yeah. being able to see your first client. Yeah. You know, um, I've had other therapists be on waiting lists, depending on the areas that they're in. And I know you've heard of that, um, that they say that there's too many insured in there. I mean, too many providers in the area under, under their insurance plan. Um, and so they, they're not accepting any more providers in the area at this time, and they'll be on waiting lists for, for two or three years. Um, so, but still 180 days still seems, um, well, that is six months. mm -hmm. I mean, and, and on average, they usually take about three months, um, which is hard, you know, I mean, it's really hard to, um, have someone in the practice that you could give, could assign the clients to and increase the accessibility to care. But then there's that barrier in place with the insurance company that you can't actually um, say like, well, we have a person with availability, but they're not quite contracted with your insurance yet. So, you know, do you want to do a financial assistance rate until they're paneled? And it just becomes this sort of strange process where it should just be direct. It should be easy. The client shouldn't have to worry about these things, you know? And so when you, so now when you're moving from the position of, okay, so now I'm finally contracted with um, the insurance company and they're allowing me to see clients. Do therapists have any power in negotiating um, the rates that they uh, accept for services depending upon the insurance company? I have never heard of an insurance company negotiating the rates for a new contract. Usually if you're in their network for a few years, um, you can reach out to your rep and you can 
do your best to give them a financial analysis of everything and hope for the best. Um, but a lot of times you do get shot down because there's so many therapists out there. Um, and the insurance companies really have a lot of, a lot of power. So there's not really this huge incentive for them to raise their rates. Um, the ones that I have heard that are doing it is when therapists really start to come together. And to be honest with you, you know, they're kind of fed up and the rates haven't been changed for eight years <laughs> and cost of living has changed drastically. And, and providers are basically threatening to leave the network because it's not a livable wage for the therapist. And why is that important to the patient? Why is what specifically important to the patient? Why, the, the, why is it important to like patient care for uh therapists to have some more control over their contracts and how um, rates are negotiated? Oh, I mean, I think that nobody wants a burnt out therapist who's um, not able to get by. I mean, that creates an enormous amount of stressors for the therapist. Um, and they need to be able to afford their house too. They need to be able to afford their tra their transportation, their healthcare, um, their their food. If they have children, to be able to afford the cost of childcare and everything, uh, and some of the some of the rates that insurance companies reimburse at are, you know, rather offensive. Yes, and uh, once again, um, I think we should uh, just note that for the audience that sometimes it does involve the region that you're in. And sometimes it does involve um, how dense the population that you're in, in the area that you're serving, but pretty much overall nationwide. Um, the One of the issues that is believed um, by NAMI, the National Association, uh, National Alliance on Mental Health, one of the issues that they believe that's affecting um, accessibility to mental health care is uh, the reimbursement rates for psychiatrists and other mental health clinicians to be able to stay um, in business, to be able to serve their communities. Um, so when we look at those issues and we look at mental health care, how is it, how is mental health care sort of different from the issues that show up in just health care, like physical health care in general? What are some of the major differences that you see um, with those two models? Um, in terms of affordability? Affordability. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably one of the biggest things is the frequency in which people are accessing mental health care. I mean, when you're going to any other specialist, um, you have a medical condition you're working on, and, and yes, you may need to see a specialist or a series of specialists um, over several appointments in a short period of time. But in counseling, it's really something that most people are doing on a weekly to biweekly basis over a pretty extended period of time. I mean, and the, the, the treatment itself um, can be pretty prolonged depending on what's presenting um, in the room. So those costs can really add up, those out-of-pocket costs to, to have that kind of investment in oneself. Yes. And I think that, um, you know, with mental health care, it's not 
sort of this come into your office visit, you know, let's say you have a scratchy throat and, you know, you're prescribed something and then you go home and, you know, and, you know, five to 10 days, you're, you're feeling better and, and you move on. Um, many times when people are dealing with certain mental health issues in their life, um, it requires a certain amount of, of, of sessions, like you said, weekly sessions, but it also requires a certain amount of time. And, um, you know, if it's taken, you know, 32 years of trauma uh, for to get you in this this seat in front of your therapist to start working on some of the ways in which you want your life to improve, um, it, it's not going to happen in our standard, uh, you know, three to six sessions or, you know, eight to 10 sessions. And I think that um, that may be something different that, that is not um exactly understood too when we look about when we think about accessibility of of, of affordable um, mental health care the other thing is is the structure of the day Um, Susan I think that um, just to kind of put it out there um, you know doctors uh, when we talk about seeing more patients and making uh, services more accessible and being able to do more therapy doctors uh, can access patients, uh, they can see four or five patients an hour. They can see eight patients an hour if they want to. How many patients does a therapist usually see an hour, Susan? <laughs> Just one. Well, yeah. unless it's a couple or a family. I mean, you're sitting with mm-hmm. that person for an hour um, or that couple or that family for an hour. So, I mean, every once in a while, you can kind of get it down to 45 minutes um, if the person's doing well. Um or if you're doing some maintenance booster sessions, you can do that in 30. But yeah, we're not we're not rotating clients in and out every 10 to 15 minutes. So in essence, um, you know, a good number for a therapist to be, you know, functioning and to be fully engaged with their patients and to be completely um, able to be open and accessible by the people in front of them how many patients can a therapist really see a week and I mean, in your opinion, and still do good therapy? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's going to vary from therapist to therapist. But what I have most often seen here at Agape and the providers that we have is the sweet spot is really five to six a day, um, four to five days a week. And you know, maybe if they're doing four days a week, they could do six or seven a day. Um, but it really does require a lot of very intentional listening, very intentional um, thought on the part of the therapist. Um, so it's it's a lot of mental effort to be engaged even for five to six hours a day and then shifting from person to person, right? It's not just the same patient. You they all come with different stories. They all come with different experiences of trauma. They all come with different conditions. Um, and so for the therapist as well, we have to be really mindful of um, how we're feeling and how much um, of our own resources we have to give. So we're still providing quality care for the client too. So that automatically creates an accessibility challenge. I don't Absolutely. want to call it an issue because it's just the nature of the work we do. You know, um, we we don't do the type of work where we can just uh, sort of turn people out like a factory. Right. We do the type of work that requires us to actually take time um, and really 
get to know people's lives um, in how we um, help them. So in other professions, I've seen that, like, especially with like doctors, right? We're talking about like physical medicine doctors. They've been able to access other um, practitioners for some of the work that they do, which then creates opportunities to make um, the services more accessible. So for example, like, you know, um, they can have an ARNP or a physician assistant, or they can have a, a resident um, see some of their clients and um, actually, you know, be able to help more people throughout the day. And I know that in mental health, that's not always the case with us. Um, some ways of access, such as Medicaid, allows for um, registered interns or uh, peer specialists to be accessed um, as part of, um, you know, being able to see, do therapy or, or get help um, from a mental health professional. But there is really no other, um, you know, and I, I try to think about this over and over, but there's really no other um, ways in which people pay for mental health services that are really allowing that, Susan. But I know that you've been able to incorporate that, incorporate that into your practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you're right. Medicaid has historically always been the insurance company that has allowed billing for registered interns, you know, mainly because just they realized there was a need to um, increase the pool of providers. Um, and since COVID happened, um, and maybe Sigma. we should say registered interns. When we say registered interns, we mean that when you finish your master's degree as a therapist, you have to do two years of supervision where you are training in all of your final uh, clinical skills and um, work in the mental health field before you become fully licensed. And um, so this is a, so you will be seeing a therapist who's just sort of newly entering newly the field, licensed. but is still very much able to practice. Yeah, they're newly licensed, and I kind of compare them to resident doctors. Yes. Um, so Cigna now allows for uh, billing of registered interns underneath the contracted licensed therapist. So they've jumped on board with recognizing there's a shortage, there's a need, um, reducing that barrier to accessing care. Um, I believe Aetna is now allowing it as well, and I have taken that information, and I am working on contacting my representatives of the other insurance companies and really kind of talking to them about this problem, like particularly since COVID and politics and social injustices, demand for access to mental health care has drastically increased. Um, so I've been reaching out to them to really advocate for, you guys really need to consider this because I can't hire fast enough to keep up with how many people need help especially not if y'all take 60 to 180 days to panel them either. Um, there's got to be a better way. Um, so I do see some room for growth there, and there are some changes. The other thing that I've specifically addressed also is looking at the student intern. So that master's student who's in graduate school, they have finished their coursework, which by the way, in mental health, a master's degree is twice as long as most master's degrees. Um, and they're in the end doing their clinical training. Yeah, I so, don't think people realize that we, we you stay for your master's degree at a minimum, depending on, you know, uh, how long you're able to complete it, three years at a minimum. Yeah, mm -hmm. 60, 60 credits, mm -hmm. which most, most master's degrees are 
you know, 30 to 36. So we do have a long graduate program. Um, and we're partnering with the universities to bring them in. And um, those student interns doing the training, they're not, you know, getting paid. They're doing it as part of school. That doesn't mean they don't come with overhead costs, but it really does mean we're able to provide very low cost care and we're able to really cater to the needs of the lowest income individuals, couples, and families in the community. And so just, um, you know, little changes and tweaks like that in, in mental health could mean big, big, um, you know, advances in uh, mental health care being more accessible to people. Um, so then I have to play a little bit of the devil's advocate and say, you know, um, Susan, why it like, is that safe? Like, is it safe to have someone who's not licensed providing um, you therapy? I think, you know, there's always risks when it comes to counseling, period. But these are also students who have completed a bachelor's degree. They have applied to the school that they're in. They have been accepted into that school. They have been monitored, managed, and taught by PhD level um, mental health professionals and or people who are also therapists in the community. Um, and they're at the end of the program too. So they have been highly trained and highly vetted up until this point. This is not somebody who's just coming in with no knowledge and no experience whatsoever. Um, and they're highly supervised when they're students. They have faculty supervision one-on-one. -on -one. They have um, group supervision at their school. They have one-on-one -on -one supervision with their site supervisor, which at Agape would be considered the site, and they have group supervision at their site. So they're also getting several hours of supervision from fully licensed therapists. Um, and in that sense, I mean, we've never had a, you know, a big concern for, oh no, like this isn't safe, this isn't right. I mean, when you really look at the quality of work that they're doing and you get client feedback, so many of them, you know, aren't necessarily differentiating from the quality of therapy that they're getting from some of the students compared to the more um, experienced therapists. So I think that this is definitely an avenue that helps make um, mental health care more accessible in terms of doing therapy and being able to sit in front of a professional and really get some help. But we do know there are just a couple other limitations to working with a license, I mean, a non-licensed uh, intern versus a licensed intern. And some of those things are people just need to be aware that, um, you know, if you are have something very specific that you need, um, you know, a, a social security uh, evaluation, or maybe you're going to court and you need certain documentation or paperwork, or maybe you are in a custody hearing and you need, um, you know, a certain level of expertise. Um, I, I would say that you need to really consider uh, as you access services, um, what the level of therapy that you need um, so that you're not necessarily choosing an option that's not going to, to serve you the best for your particular uh, level of expertise needed and particular type of therapy. Um, I wonder if you could just give a little bit of clarification on that, Susan, so that people can understand um, 
how to choose the therapist that they may need, even if they are uh, looking at um, affordability to consider all areas of what their needs are when accessing services. Yeah, in our model, um, we do have a care coordination team, which is where a client will start. And they're going to try and assess um, what are you coming in for? What do you need? And is a student going to be appropriate if you're looking for that low cost option? It isn't always appropriate. Sometimes people come in with higher acuity and they really do need someone um, with higher qualifications to see. Um, I would also say the students are strictly going to be counseling. So if you know you're coming in needing something for social security, if you know you're coming in needing something that's going to be related to court, those are services that counselors provide, you know, um, depending on the counselor, but they're not counseling itself. Um, They're kind of these adjunct services. So when thinking about the student therapists or the student counselors, they're really just going to be focused on just the counseling piece. They're not going to be working on anything that's related to court or anything that's related to social security um, or emotional support animals. They don't have the qualifications yet to really provide those kinds of services. And I thank you for that because I think it it's just um, something that maybe, you know, when you're looking for, you know, counseling and you really want to access services and you are working with, you know, a limited amount of resources, um, you still need and deserve the best care uh, possible. But also uh, with the current system and the way healthcare is set up in the United States, we do have to understand that there are some limitations to right now how we can um, access what we really need um, for what the system allows, um, because there are situations where they may not allow a unlicensed therapist um, to work with your particular needs. Now, Susan, I'm going to let you have this because I feel like I have some very hard feelings about this next topic. So I'm just going to open it up and say, talk to me about insurance denials and insurance (laughs) claims being denied. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Mm -hmm. So some insurance companies are more well-known for their claims denials than others. Um, And well-known in the sense that they deny without giving you a reason for it being denied. And I think that's one thing that really needs to change when it comes to insurance. Um, There really does need to be something that explains the rationale behind it and working through it. Personally, most of the denials that I deal with are very simple issues like a mistake in the ID number or the insurance company has part of the part of the member's record wrong and it's kind of an administrative error that has to be worked through. Um, but in the past, I've definitely worked with insurance companies that uh, really feels at a certain point, like they just deny because that's part of their, well, frankly, part of their financial strategy um, to keep their bottom line um, higher. And it's extremely disheartening and it's really difficult to deal with. Um, But I mean, I would say the ones that I'm working with now are pretty good about it. Um, 
sometimes I've had them kind of say like, we're denying this because, because of the diagnosis. Like we don't cover that diagnosis. And I'm just like, why not that diagnosis, but this diagnosis? Yes. It doesn't really make sense that they kind of cherry pick what they will and won't reimburse for. Uh, and you really have to know like the game of insurance too. And you have to educate your client. You have to say like, listen, you're using your insurance. Insurance is in the business of covering X, Y, and Z. If you don't really meet criteria for that, insurance isn't going to cover this and we need to have a different conversation. How difficult is it as a therapist? I mean, and I'm asking for, you know, my through I'm asking through my own experiences too. How difficult is it as a therapist sometimes to find a diagnosis when you have someone in front of you that's more of a walking wounded person where we know that they therapy would be very beneficial. We know they need some help. We know that um, hashing over some of these issues is going to really help them figure out some things for their life. But it, you don't always feel as comfortable with necessarily giving them a mental health diagnosis, you know, so to speak. How do you sort of navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an awful feeling. But I mean, my philosophy is just transparency and honesty, um, educating them on how insurance works, what mental health conditions are, um, what they aren't. Um, some people are also very afraid to have a diagnosis on their record. Um, you know, they kind of fear that there is some system out there that employers can tap into and see their conditions, um, which isn't true, you know, so it's also educating them on protected health information, um, dispelling fears, um, and kind of setting the record straight with people. But our care coordination team is pretty good about having some of those conversations up front with people. Um, I try to hear at Agape. I try to help um, the therapists focus on clinical and therapy and working with the client and having that relationship. And then our care coordination team is working on scheduling and billing and financial questions and more of the logistics side of it. So the therapist can just focus on that therapeutic relationship. I think it's so nice that you have that resource in your office, you know, um, to be able to have people that can sort of go over that stuff and work with the client on that level. Um, because I know that in other offices, um, there's not necessarily room for a second staff. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. it's the therapist who is doing all of that, plus the therapy, which of course then creates, you know, other problems in the dynamic of the, of the therapeutic relationship, but um, also it, it, you know, can create other challenges and how the therapist can actually structure her day and, and, and focus on therapy, which is the sole um, focus of her work. And um, so I'm just wondering, like, how have you, how have you been able to uh, sort of incorporate those services within um, your office versus other practitioners who haven't been able to figure out a way to, um, with the rates that re you're reimbursed as a therapist, to incorporate a second patient coordinator in the office. Um, how has that worked for you? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, when I opened Agape, it was 
just me, myself, and I. I was the provider. I was the business administrator. I was the receptionist. I was all of it. You know, I wore all the hats and I saw seven to eight clients a day and did all of the billing, both for the client and for insurance. I dealt with any claims denials. I answered the phones. I answered emails. Um, And a lot of it was really being creative and figuring out how to work with other people in the community that are interested in mental health, um, who are willing, in the beginning, willing to volunteer their time. So I actually found that a lot of undergraduate psychology students are really interested in learning and really interested in getting some exposure into what a mental health practice looks like. It helps them um, improve their resume. It helps them get into graduate school as well. Again, that works in a city like Orlando where we have a very large um, public university here and we have a couple of really prominent private universities here too that you know, competition to get into those graduate schools can be high. So some of those undergrad psychology students are really eager to, to volunteer their time. With time, um, I've grown Agape to have a larger group of providers. Um, and I think the larger your organization is, the more there are some of those residual funds to be able to hire a patient care coordinator to help and have some hired help. Um, but of course, funds are very limited. Um, it's very hard to afford that. Um, and we still look at that internship model too as um, a way to make it more effective, especially within the context of a nonprofit organization and to maximize the amount of funds that we have to go back towards the low cost care for the community because that's our mission. Do you think by choosing a non um a not-for-profit model for your practice. Do you think that's allowed you to expand out uh, your accessibility of your services more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the IRS is, is favorable to healthcare organizations and education organizations in terms of granting that tax-exempt status. So as a not-for-profit organization that's tax-exempt by the IRS, I mean, that is that equates to to all that money that might have been paid in taxes um, for the corporation to go directly back to a financial assistance program. And it does help keep cost of care lower because it's one less overhead cost we have. Susan, do you think that if, um, you know, therapists, like let's just say individual therapists are to stay in therapy, because I know that, you know, through COVID, there's been some changes to mental health in terms of um, seeing people in office versus going virtual versus um, all the other changes um, that have taken place. Do you think more private mental health offices in order to stay in business will have to move to that not-for-profit model? Um, I think they could. I mean, I I think there's a lot of opportunity for providers to be educated on what is and isn't um, a not-for-profit model. Um, Not-for-profit doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't fees for service. Mm -hmm. It's that you've created a model that shows you have a mission and here's the strategy of how you're going to get to that mission. And every single person in the organization who is being paid wages, you've proven that what they are being paid is 
fair and reasonable. So we're using some of that data from um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, by the government. So you're always kind of assessing what is the normal, what is the average uh, wage for this particular occupation. So nobody's really getting overpaid or like, hey, there's all this money left. I'm going to go buy a boat. <laughs> That's not going to happen in a nonprofit. I think that it's definitely um, an avenue um, that maybe might need to be considered more um, when we look at private mental health offices um, in terms of how we structure uh, accessible uh, mental health care in uh, this country. Because we do see, and I have seen uh, from personal experience and also just with other uh, practitioners, that um, trying to structure a mental health office uh, under a for-profit model, the same way doctors are able to structure their medical practices under a for-profit model, um, does not work the same way. So um, I do think there's something to be said for the way in which uh, you have started navigating this world. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing more things come out of that um, because I really feel like it is an avenue that could really not just be beneficial for helping people, um, but also beneficial for keeping private practitioners of mental health in the community, because that's something that's very important. Um, the number of private people having private offices, uh, mental health offices in, in the community has actually gone down, um, especially since COVID. And so I think um, different ways in which we start to uh, talk about this problem and bring it to people's attention um, is very important. So um, one of the other ways in which we see um, access to mental health being more accessible is licensed portability. Can you explain a little bit of what licensed portability is? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So um, each state has its own Department of Health that controls um, licenses for healthcare providers and, you know, medical, mental health, you name it. Um, and historically, you are licensed in your state and you can only provide to residents of that state. So if I'm licensed in Florida, I am not able to provide counseling to anyone in Georgia or Washington or New York or anything like that. Um, there so is just some, for a little bit of clarity. So Susan, yeah, just so that people understand. So that means like I can go to the university of Georgia and I can get a master's degree from the university of Georgia do all my clinical work in the, at the University of Georgia and then move to Florida and take my test to get licensed in Florida and hold the same master's degree that I had in Georgia as I now do in Florida, the same education, the same experience, but I would not be able to practice in Georgia. Correct. Makes no uh, sense. <laughs> correct. And it's, um, it's becoming slightly more common for other states to recognize that you have a license from another state that's comparable and we will also give you a license to provide. However, as most healthcare providers know, applying for a license is not cheap. Maintaining a license is not cheap. Um, these, there are a lot of out-of-pocket costs to that. I believe the primary problem with licensure portability would be for a provider in a certain state, let's say me in Florida, and I'm now providing counseling to someone in North Dakota, and that person is having a mental health crisis. I know nothing 
about the emergency resources or the acts or the bills of North Dakota on how to get that person um, to an emergency clinic if they are a threat uh, to their own life. So there is that um, piece that I think needs to be kind of figured out if if we're going to go full licensure portability or the counseling compact to to be enacted across more states. Um, that's I think that to me that's the biggest barrier. So that brings me to the next question because as therapists we know some of the pros and cons with uh, license portability and then now because of COVID telehealth. And so I think you and I can both agree that there are some pros to making mental health more accessible through telehealth um, types of services and, and telehealth access. But we also have some negatives to that. And I think that we're seeing companies like BetterHelp, for example, pop up and they are just advertising and preaching and recruiting therapists um, to go online and do therapy and uh, you have no paperwork. You, you don't take any notes. You don't keep any documentation on your clients. And therapists are getting recruited and they're working and seeing clients um, in, in the U.S., but also in different countries. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I know a therapist that has half of her caseload um, between Switzerland, Japan, Sweden, and, and it's just uh, it's a very interesting situation. But um, what, like, what are, where does that put us, Susan? Like, there's some real concerns um, when we talk about accessing mental health care. And you just mentioned one of them with um, services uh, like BetterHelp. It sounds great. And, of course, we love the idea of people being able to, you know, get online or pick up their phone and, and have a therapist right there when they need it. But... I know that there are some concerns. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of quality control um, over a company like that. And they don't claim to have therapists as employees. They claim to kind of be a place where people have access to therapists who are independent contractors. So they kind of like wipe their hands of liability. Um, And you're right. I mean, the therapist themselves doesn't even have access to any information on the person that they are talking to other than their first name and their age. They don't Mm. know what they look like. They don't know their last name. They don't know their address. They don't know anything. And sometimes online becomes, you know, someone who's in crisis and is having suicidal thoughts or, or maybe not even fully formed suicidal thoughts, but still a deep place of depression it is great that they're online and they see something that says help is available and it's easy to access. However, they need more than to be able to talk to a therapist online via chat um, that it's really hard to make a therapeutic relationship out of that. And, um, you know, the quality, I think the quality of service just, really suffers when you go into kind of these like quick fixes um, or quick act like too quick of access. Um, There needs to be some quality control too. I think that just sort of puts into perspective um, that, you know, for the most part, I think therapists really, 
identify with wanting clients to, like you said, be able to see that help button online, press it and get help. And I think therapists really um, like the idea of uh, maybe doing some video conferencing with clients or chat um, to be able to provide those moments, to be in those moments where people have a need and uh, be able to meet that need. Uh, I'm just wondering with these new avenues of access being created and then also affordability because, you know, BetterHelp also preaches the model of levels of affordability. So if you are someone who maybe feels like you can't afford a session, then you could like get an email or you can get a text message. So there's levels of access and levels of affordability. And I think all that's great. Um, But I wonder, like, like you mentioned before, I wonder how much we're losing in, in lost in the translation of quality care or actually fully developing that therapeutic alliance in building a relationship? Or should we be looking at access to care as far as mental health care and services like BetterHelp as just being, um, you know, sort of one-time temporary, um, sort of in the meantime, before you can get in to see, uh, you know, your, your therapist, um, resources that you can use to sort of, for lack of a better word, you know, keep you alive, you know, yeah. or keep you engaged. Um, yeah, I think like some access to someone to talk to and to talk about the symptoms you're having and almost like helping create a plan with this person. Like, here's what you're telling me. Here's what I kind of think is going on. Here are my recommendations, so on and so forth. Um, and, and I think it can also work for individuals who, aren't a higher acuity in terms of their mental health condition. Mm -hmm. Um, In those cases, I think something like that model works really well. I think the problem is when you get someone who, oh my gosh, like the level of trauma that they've been through and this poor person, like the only thing that they have right now is a chat room with a therapist and, you know, kind of expecting therapy. Um, And I don't think the integrity of therapy can really be held up in a model like that. Um, And so it would require some education, I think, from the therapist with the person that they're talking to and helping them get to a therapist face to face. I mean, Tasha, you and I both know as uh, therapists who have worked with individuals who have a lot of trauma, nothing can replace the one-on-one face to face in the therapy room work that happens that just can't really happen in a chat room online. It's never going to happen in a chat room online. Not, not with, with trauma. You're absolutely right. And so I guess that leads me to, you know, the final portion of the podcast. And that is, you know, Susan, how, where do we go from here? Like, how do we move that these issues forward? Like, how do we continue um, as therapists, but also individuals who, you know, need or seek mental health care, how do we continue to work on these systemic mental health access and assess, uh, account access and affordability issues? Yeah, um, I love the article that you quoted before the doctor is out from NAMI. I know they talk about auditing um, insurance companies and making sure that they're actually adhering to parity. Um, I think that also needs to happen with employers too. I still know employers out there who offer medical coverage, but not mental health coverage. Where's the auditing of this? 
Um, I think that there needs to be some standardization of rates for for insurance companies to adhere to um, CMS.gov physician fee schedule rates. Absolutely. They do Um, not follow those rates. No, they don't. And there needs to be some standardization on what the value is of our services. It cannot range from one contract at an insurance company that says the value of therapy is $30 and then all the way to the other end, you know, some of them say, well, we think it's 105. Because what happens is for the client whose insurance pays 30 versus the client whose insurance pays 105, we can see the pitfall of that, you know, what kind of providers um, can even take Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, you know, not including your rent, your electric, your water, your licensure costs, your liability insurance costs. Um, Just people are employed in your office (laughs) for that hour. (laughs) People are employed in your office. I mean, they're the continuing education units that you have to do, right? The credit card processing fees, um, your claims processing fees, that, that $30 quickly becomes $5 is what happens. Um, So, I mean, I think standardization of rates is something that needs to be looked at um, and auditing, I think. I think also being really creative and thinking outside of the box. I mean, I think we need to look at, um, you know, what does wellness look like in our society, you know, outside of looking at just insurance and outside of looking at just the traditional therapy model, like how do we create a more therapeutic society in general? Um, What's going on in our culture that's also leading to, and I know this is a whole other topic, but Mm -hmm. that's also leading to these really high rates of mental health conditions and suicides kind of skyrocketing. Um, Those are really important, I think, to look at. Um, I also think helping therapists, um, learn and understand nonprofit business models is another great way. Um, And I also think some more collaborative care models, which I think Nami talks about as well in that article, you know, primary care physician offices um, having perhaps mental health counselors on site um, and prescribers, the prescribers being able to be expanded from a psychiatrist to include more ARNPs, more NPs, they can start prescribing some of these medications as well to increase access to care. I totally agree. I think um, all of those areas are going to move us forward in making uh, mental health more accessible. Um, But so how do we communicate to patients and people who are seeking help? How do we communicate to them that they have got to start advocating for their needs in healthcare. They have got to start, you know, cause I find that people are, um, you know, as humans, we can be a little bit um, a reactive versus proactive. And so we don't really know uh, to, to think about things or to consider how important they are to our life until, you know, we got a 16 year old at home who's thinking about suicide because they have bullied in school or, you know, we ourselves are experiencing an extreme, extreme amount of workplace stress or traumatic stress or even workplace bullying. And now we know we need help. And then all of a sudden, 
uh, we realize that mental health care in this country just sucks when it comes to really being able to access the help that you need. Like, how do we, uh, you know, get people to understand that there is a, if you could, we could wave a red flag, we need to be screaming and waving at the top of our lungs that you really need to be advocating for what your needs are in terms of health care in this country. Yeah. And mental health care. Um, yeah. I mean, I, my first thought, of course, is always go back to your representative. I mean, we do live in a society where we have a government that is a government of representatives for us. And I know that it feels disheartening and like probably most of us feel like we're not even being listened to. Um, but hey, I'm still every almost every month or so I'm sending some sort of email to my representatives about what I see is a problem and an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and voices matter, especially in numbers. Um, I, so I think that's something. I also think that a lot of people don't realize that they can call their insurance company and talk to talk to someone there and say, "Listen, this is what is happening. Um, what are what are my options? What can I do?" Sometimes insurance companies have a certain number of EAPs that for the EAP is no cost to the client, and sometimes they'll give them more. Um, if you just ask and say, listen, you know, three more would really help me um, just to get on my feet or something like that. And the insurance company will cover that cost at 100%. Um, don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to ask. Um, and don't be afraid to just say, here's where I am. And this is the kind of help that I need. And I'd like to add, don't wait until you get into your therapist's office <laughs> to be ready to ask for help. Uh, yeah. We are there and help on a certain level. Um, but when it comes to some of these um, issues, like Susan said, you've got to ask the right person. And that person is your representative. That person is calling your insurance company. Um, sometimes as a therapist, uh, there's only so much the insurance company honestly is going to listen to us or um, want to really uh, take us sort of seriously, but you are the person that is on the policy and you, and you are paying for um, care, health care, mental health care that you um, are entitled to. And so with that, um, you have to sometimes be the squeakier wheel in some of this to get the job done. It does not start in the therapist's office uh, when you arrive and it, and it doesn't stop um, after you leave. It takes, uh, it's gonna take a team approach in order to combat some of these issues that we're facing right now in um, mental health care. Yeah, and I think creating more dialogue around it as you and I are doing now. I mean, just getting the conversations going, helping people understand how the system works and collective, collectively working on um, resolutions that also work for us as a, as a society. Absolutely. Susan, before we close out today, is there anything you feel like um, you would you need to say or anything that we um, did not cover that needs to be said about this issue? 
Well, we covered a lot of ground. I'm sure there is always more to be said when it comes to the complex world of mental health and insurance. I think one thing uh, was just that just came to mind that we didn't touch on was um, peer support services. Mm, yes. Um, and those needing to be recognized as highly valuable as well. Um, just peer therapeutic relationships and talk about low cost or free access to therapeutic relationships. And while it's not talking to a therapist specifically, um, they're enormously helpful. And um, some insurance companies are recognizing them too um, as part of the solution. So I think that that needs some more light as well. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, peer support is probably, probably can be one of the fastest growing areas um, in 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 mental health services and making things uh, more accessible and also decreasing stigma around yeah. mental health is having more uh, peer support services. And I know that that's something that Medicaid has allowed for and uh, in some instances uh, probably advocated for um, in community mental health settings. And I feel like, um, you know, insurance is private insurance is maybe just now catching up or being a little bit hesitant to recognize how valuable peer support can be um, as part of the collaborative, when you talked about a collaborative model um, in terms of of approaching people's issues, definitely, I would definitely say that that's part of that. Yeah. All right, Susan, thank you so much for um, joining me today and having this conversation. Um, I think that uh, we were able to cover some things that hopefully people are able to find some value in. And um, I would definitely be interested in getting feedback or hearing from um, anyone out there that may be listening um, that has some other questions or maybe you have some differing views. That's something that I think me and Susan would be willing to come back and discuss, too, Um, because everybody has a different approach to how they either do therapy or the experiences that they've had in therapy or experiences that they've had in trying to access um, mental health care. But um, for this podcast, I would say that our conversation has concluded and um, I wish you uh, wellness and balance in um, your life. Thank you.